0: It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host. And in today's podcast, we'll forget Alexander the Great, forget all things Roman, because we're going further back in ancient history. We're going to the Near East, and we're talking all about the Assyrian Empire. All about the Assyrians. We're talking about cuneiform, with a particular focus on Assyrian scholarship that has been preserved through surviving cuneiform tablets. We're going to be looking at the association between court scholars and particular Assyrian kings, the rise of court scholarship, shall we say, in the early 1st millennium BC. We're going to be talking about various kings, various figures, such as Sargon II and the famous or infamous Ashurbanipal, as well as the god Nabu and how he became so closely associated with scholarship in ancient Assyria. Now joining me to talk through all of this and so much more. It's about time we focused on ancient Assyria, so trust me, this isn't going to be the last of our ancient Assyrian episodes. Join me to talk all about this. We've got an esteemed Assyriologist on the show, and that is Professor Eleanor Robson. Eleanor is the head of the Department of History and Professor of Ancient Middle Eastern History at UCL. It was wonderful to meet Eleanor in person for this great chat. So, without further ado, to talk all about cuneiform and Assyrian scholarship, here's Eleanor. Eleanor, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today.
1: It's a real pleasure to be with you. Thank you for inviting me.
0: You're very welcome, and I love your office. It's absolutely beautiful. So many books everywhere. It's so brilliant. (laughs) I know it's a simple question, but it's a good place to start. What is cuneiform?
1: or cuneiform or cuneiform doesn't matter how we pronounce it really it's just a script like the alphabet or like hieroglyphics or like Chinese script it's a means of writing multiple different languages just as the alphabet sort of western alphabet today is used to write anything from English French Basque all sorts of unrelated languages so it was developed um, in southern Iraq we think over 5,000 years ago and was used for over 3,000 years across the Middle East to write a, a variety of different languages, including direct or indirect ancestors of um, modern-day Hebrew and Arabic, languages that we collectively call Akkadian, that includes Babylonian in the south of Iraq and Assyrian in the north, but also other languages that were not related to Babylonian, such as Sumerian in southern Iraq, Hittite in ancient Turkey, Hurrian in Syria, etc. And it even reached as far as Egypt at some point. Unlike the alphabet, however, cuneiform from the outside looks very complex. It looks as complicated as hieroglyphics or Chinese. But that, I think, is because we're looking at it from the outside and trying to look at all the different ways it was used for writing in different contexts, for different languages, over a 3,000-year period. And if we focus down on what any one particular group was using in this whole superset of cuneiform scripts at any one time, we see that it's actually much more manageable. It's still not an alphabet. It's a complex mixture of syllables and word signs, but it's not nearly as scary as it first looks.
0: And I'm guessing, though, with cuneiform, the the huge time period with which it's used and the various different cultures that used it, let's say cuneiform of... Neo-Assyrian times, would it look quite different to that being used in, let's say, Babylonian times at the time of the Macedonian conquest or something, half a millennium later?
1: Yes, absolutely it would. So there are various things that change. So cuneiform, I should have said earlier, is marking the surface, usually clay, with wedge-shaped marks to make signs. So that's literally what it means. But Just as, say, modern day handwriting styles change and you can look at an old document and just by looking at it, guess, oh, this is Victorian or this is medieval. A trained cuneiformist can do the same. And then when you start reading, you realise that spelling conventions change as well and they also depend on context. And that the format of documents is also very genre dependent and, and time dependent. So again, when you're looking at um, you know, pulling a random manuscript from a modern day library, you can tell before you start to read roughly what you're looking at. Is this a legal document? Is this a novel? Is this printed? Is this handwritten? Et cetera. So again, all of that is encompassed in the changing, the, the evolution of cuneiform and its dispersal across the Middle East over 3000 years.
0: And you mentioned like written documents, novels, so in terms of like administration, mythology and all of that, within cuneiform, it seems that like there are these various subcultures, shall we say?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. So cuneiform was probably invented in order to do um, bookkeeping, where to keep control of assets, debts, etc., of big institutions over 5,000 years ago. And for at least the first half of its history was used almost exclusively for that. So the late Assyriologist Bob England estimated a few years ago that 97% of our evidence is numerical, administrative, etc. But it's a vast amount of evidence because all the stuff that survives was written on clay or other durable materials. So we have just... Huge amounts of material to work with. I mean, probably quarter of a million documents in the British Museum alone. And never mind all the other museums scattered around the place. Iraq, Turkey, uh, Syria have big holdings. Lots of uh, European and North American museums and East Asian too. So there's just a vast amount to work with. And then from that legal documents, so people showing that they have ownership rights or owe people... And then gradually evolving into letters, sending information and orders first, and then more kind of emotional and content. Intellectual content develops quite late. When I say late, I'm talking about the last third of the third millennium BC. So that's probably very early for most people, but it's all relative. And so the intellectual traditions where people are writing down knowledge that was very complex or very lengthy is, a, is really quite a small part. And in the early days, certainly, and probably from most of the tradition, very closely related to religious culture and also to political power.
0: And is this where we start seeing this royal link to intellectual cuneiform, like straight away, you mentioned the religious side, but political power too, are we thinking royalty at this time as well?
1: The first evidence, the really good evidence we have of kings wanting scholars in their courts to advise them as opposed to, say, uh, military generals or provincial officials, people who weren't in control of other people or vast amounts of money. The most direct evidence we've got is the 18th century BC, of course. Indirectly, we can probably infer that for another three centuries or so before that.
0: And so what sorts of intellectual enterprises are we talking about within this scholarly cuneiform culture?
1: The kings, they're most interested in finding people that can help them make decisions without having their own vested political or military interests. So they're interested in divination. Now that to us sounds very unscholarly, very mumbo-jumbo and yeah, deeply unscientific. But if you imagine yourself that you are the ruler of a large kingdom, you have military advisors who are in control of large armies, you have perhaps provincial governors who also have their own vested interests. You live in a world um, which is governed by the gods. As far as you're concerned, the gods make all the decisions about what happens and you need to keep in the gods' favour in order to make sure that nobody is conspiring against you to murder you, the next neighbouring king isn't plotting to overthrow you, etc. And so who do you find to give you objective advice? It's people like you who are elite and male might be connected to you, but aren't, you know, don't have the power to overthrow you because they don't have resources at their disposal. And yet you're a ruler and so you don't want to be seen to be weak. So you're consulting the gods and divination is a means to do that. So the early evidence we have is a very strange to us concept of examining the entrails of sacrificial animals for signs from the gods in a very deliberate and public ceremony in which the question that the gods are being consulted on is public within the court, so that everybody knows the king is asking, should I appoint so-and-so to my inner cabinet? Will they be loyal? So they know the king is thinking about these things. And then the diviner sacrifices an animal, systematically examines the entrails, and that observation process gets recorded by a, a scribe standing next to him. And the gods send messages through the entrails which are collectively positive or negative. And that is not the end of it. That's a set of starting points for the king to then go into private conversation with the diviner and have a conversation about the loyalty or otherwise of this potential appointee. And so when the decision is made, it seemed to be the gods' decision because they have sent the messages. But in fact, there's a lot of sort of social work going on Co-opting the whole court into this big decision-making event, knowing that it's happening and knowing that the gods are looking out, so don't even think about being disloyal, but allowing the king some privacy to make a choice with a, a, a trusted advisor who isn't, doesn't have an army or, or land at his disposal so no means to rebel against. So the diviners are kept quite separate from the rest of the court, but they're often yeah, male and elite and related to the king in those early days.
0: Okay. It's, it's interesting how, as you say, they kind of spill into this area of, of advisors, as it were, of all places as advisors for the royal figure.
1: And they also do other things as well. But that idea of the royal advisor who who sees the future is actually not, hasn't entirely gone away. Listeners listener of a certain age might remember our former Prime Minister Tony Blair's wife, Cherie, had an astrologer. President Mitterrand was also known to have one, and President Reagan. And it may well be that the current generation also turns out these things come out usually after the end of office. No idea. The the pressures of power are such that, and and the paranoia around that often involves the consulting at one remove. It's really not that strange, not that distant in time. This is still quite a modern phenomenon.
0: You join the Ancients podcast, it's about ancient Assyria, you stave to hear about Tony Blair's, you know, the astrology links and Tony Blair's wow, that's amazing, I didn't even know that at all. I see it's the modern day. Eleanor, if we focusing, because I know you've done a lot of work on the, the Neo Assyrian period and scholarly cuneiform at that time at the court, I mean, but first of all, as a bit of background to that, the origins of Assyrian court scholarship, as it were, going back to this period, which is called the Middle Assyrian period, what is this and when is this?
1: So, yes, yeah, so we were talking just now about of the late 3rd, early 2nd millennium BC. So we're going to jump forward five, 600 years or so now to just over 3,000 years ago, so about 13th to 11th centuries BC. So this is a point of big change in the Middle East where communication technologies, tr- transport technologies allow large-scale empires to cohere for a much longer courses. I've been domesticated, so people can travel big distances and move armies and, and such. So, there are new powers on the stage, and particularly in northern, what's now northern Iraq, um, Assyria, who, as with many newcomers to a political stage, are slightly perhaps have a slight inferiority complex to longer established ones. And so, bringing in different types of advisor from the south, from Babylonia to help them consolidate their reign and get the gods on side is is really important. So we start to see this in Assyria just as Assyria starts to get large. So as it's gaining more territory through military might, that also brings the conquest, brings more wealth because they're essentially pillaging the the conquered areas and and starting to uh, move people around as well. The more wealth they gain, the more suspicious they are of how effectively they can keep it and there's worries as much about inside threats as external ones. So, yeah, we see then this big, I wouldn't say big migration, but that's not the right word. I think significant but small numbers of scholars moving, gravitating towards the Syrian court to advise them. So not just divination, but it also starts to become issues around, yeah, calendars, but also, yeah, keeping the gods on side of the Assyrian kings, so praying in the right sorts of ways, but then also providing, yeah, this one-to-one advice for kings as well. So we start to see kings naming their sort of chief scholarly advisors, their senior scholars, who will give all sorts of advice.
0: That's interesting. So, so we can kind of tell now that people are travelling to these courts to be at this place where they know that their their knowledge or whatever is going to be used by the, the person in power, as it were.
1: Yeah, so patronage relationships are something that we find across pre-modern courts, not just in the Middle East. So we can see it even earlier when the first uh, Assyrian kings of that style of governing are in correspondence with Egyptians. There's a lot of movement of doctors, for instance. So all sorts of people gravitate to centres of power and wealth and want to sell themselves themselves and tell them how busy and important and valuable they are. So scholarly relationships from this point onwards worked in a a form of patronage. So people weren't employed with a steady income, etc., but would offer advice and knowledge and would be given gifts in return. So it was always, the relationship was only ever as good as the latest transaction. And yet long-term trust relationships developed. So we can see then sort of dynasties of scholars Establishing themselves alongside the royal dynasties, and we see letters in which scholars will say, "Well, as my father said to your father," and we can see that these kind of dynasties then run in parallel.
0: Okay, so these family lines, as it were, yeah, absolutely, so interesting. And and do you start seeing those in the records? Like, do you start seeing particular names and family names as far back as, let's say, the start of the first millennium or the end of the second millennium BC?
1: Yes, from the end of the second millennium BC in Assyria, we can start to see these perhaps for four generations or so. And what's also really interesting is that we can see them rethinking their origin. So in the early days, they're quite proud of their origin. There's one family I'm thinking of in particular who's quite proud of their origins in a northern Babylonian city called Dare. And then within three, three generations, they've kind of conveniently forgotten that. And it's as if they've been in Assyria all along. They've completely naturalised and integrated and the prestige of having a family that was from a, an old Babylonian city was not so important anymore because it was all about a nationalist Assyrian identity by that point. The Assyrian power had grown strong enough not to actually want to really think about external sort of knowledge.
0: As we get to the start of the first millennium BC in the Neo-Assyrian Empire, do we see, especially let's say between the ninth and 8th centuries, do we see this evolution, Let's say in cuneiform court scholarship during this time?
1: Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of change and it depends very much on individual rulers and what their relationships with scholars are. But yeah, in the 8th century, right at the end of the 8th century BC, King Sargon, we now call him Sharukin, who was himself a usurper, had an advisor who correctly predicted the outcome of what turned out to be a really major battle up in what's now essentially Armenia, the Ratu, the kingdom to the north of Assyria. And the vast wealth captured on those raids were such that really enabled a whole new city to be built. And the scholars who had predicted this victory and had summoned the gods to make it happen were really rewarded by establishing them ab- absolutely at the centre of power. And we see this in a very straightforward geographical, micro-geographical right. way. So the Assyrian court had rural cities that it moved between in uh, northern Iraq. So Nineveh is the most famous now. But in the earlier periods, it was Ashur, which is to the south of modern-day Mosul, Nimrud, which is just a little bit further north, closer to Mosul, and yes, and then Nineveh, which is in, in Mosul itself. The court scholars worshipped a god called Nabu, the god of writing and wisdom. And in the early days, it was very much their thing. It was something that the first Assyrian scholars had brought with them from Babylon, and the Assyrian royal family had nothing to do with. And when the royal citadel at Nimrud was built, the temple for the scholars was several hundred meters away, quite away from the palace. When Sargon got all his lovely new booty from Urartu and set up a yet another royal uh, city in a place called Dur, he called Dur Sharukain, Fort Sargon, and that is known by the modern name Horsabad, he built the temple for Nabu right next to the palace with a little bridge linking. So he really starts to bring Nabu into royal ideology absolutely centrally. And we can see this happening in about the 10th year of his reign. And then over the next few generations, as his successors, his descendants have differing relationships with scholarship and particularly with the sorts of scholarship associated with the god Naboo, it comes and goes. But that's really the point at which it becomes fundamental.
0: And it's so interesting in regards to the evidence that you have for that, the, the remains of temples. So you have these temples now at this time being dedicated well, well to a god and associated almost completely forgive me if i'm wrong on that like, but with scholarship it's right at the heart of the, the royal regime
1: yes absolutely um so the god Nabu had been worshipped in different forms <clears throat> for a millennium by this point but that's the point at which he becomes central so previously there'd been Ashur, the sort of the the god who is the embodiment of the state who always remains important um ninurta the warrior god had been the, the other really important one he gets poor love, gets rather pushed aside in favour of Nabu. So there's this shift then in, in ideology that it's not all just about brute force, but there's a kind of an intellectual element to governing large empires and that it's really important to have the gods. I mean, the, we have to conceptualise the gods as actors in all of this too. The temples are places where big political and military decisions get made and the gods are conceived as being fundamental to that as well. They carry an awful lot of weight. And as gods rise and fall, then all the people surrounded by them do too.
0: Um, the, the, these places now, we have these scholars base, and you said this link with the gods as well. But let's say for academic pursuits like mathematics or astronomy, astrology, would these places be where these figures were practising that as well?
1: They absolutely were, yes. So the kings are interested in divination. And we talked about divination by sacrifice. But by the first millennium, they are also interested in divination from the, the skies. And that involves a lot of observation and prediction. So there's a lot of mathematics and, and stuff going on there. And the scholars have their own intellectual pursuits too. So for instance, at, at Nimrud, the temple of the god Nabu, it's one of my favourite places in the world. It's such a beautiful place. The god, you imagine the god as this sort of huge anthropomorphic statue seated on the throne, male god. And then his other half, Tashmetu, is in the shrine next door. Literally, they have parallel shrines. The doors open out, and Nabu looks out across the courtyard onto the library. And so all of the cuneiform tablets that constituted the scholars' library were stored opposite. So there's this direct visual relationship. That's the inner sanctum that only the scholars go. There's an outer courtyard. That has a little mini version of the throne rooms for Nabu and Tashmetu and a throne room so that when the king comes the statues of the gods are taken out and moved there so the king can then have his little retinue etc and consult the gods with the scholars there and so that's again there's privacy it's outside the palace he goes out of the palace into this space that's protected by the scholars and can commune with the scholars and the gods in privacy and have his conversations without being earwigged by visiting dignitaries, by members of the family, etc. The,
0: the fact that we know so much about this particular temple, is a it sounds like one of the great archaeological discoveries for, for a in and the like for learning all about this stuff. It sounds incredible.
1: It's one of my favourite places. I mean, one of the joys of Assyriology is that over the past 100 or more years, long-term excavations with documents in situ has provided us with vast wealth of knowledge in the way that classicists probably find quite hard to conceptualise. But yeah, we, we work with autograph artifacts found in, well, not in, not necessarily in situ, in situ, because what we've got a deposition context are where tablets were abandoned. And they're durable, so they last unless people have deliberately destroyed them. But what we do know, and what shouldn't surprise us is that the documents themselves tell us they moved around a lot, that these are not medieval libraries with great big books on chains, these are portable objects, it could be as small as a mobile phone or as large as a laptop computer, but usually in between those things. So, And we have letters saying to the king, oh, I'm sorry, I can't give you that advice at the moment. I left my tablets at home. I need to pop home and,
0: <laughs> and consult. That variety is insane. And talking about that vast amount of knowledge and this, this idea of traveling across the empire... How can toilet-training cows help save the planet? Should we start renting our clothes? And why on earth is beds from the Happy Mondays now keeping bees? I'm Jimmy Doherty,
1: TV presenter, farmer and conservationist. And these are just a few of the questions we'll
0: be answering on my new podcast on Jimmy's Farm from History Hit. Join me on the farm to hear from the likes of the founder of The Eden Project, Sir Tim Smith. It is only people who don't know what they're doing that can do marvellous things in some areas. Because received wisdom will sometimes you'll talk yourself out of it if you've got lots of people who've done it before. Professor Dieter Helm on how to stop climate change, there may be all sorts of products like avocados and everything will have palm oil in it, etc.
1: And these have not just long distances involved in, it, but they're not
0: actually producing what could be produced on the land and the frame that it's set. And my old friend Jamie Oliver, I think I was stupid enough naive enough and unspoiled enough about the world that we live in. Listen to On Jimmy's Farm now, wherever you get your podcasts. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
1: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month.
0: Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yonaga. We then move on to this particular time period where there seems to be a lot of interest in, a lot of focus on, which is the early 7th century. Why is there such a focus on this particular time period for this?
1: Because we have amazing depth of evidence. Nineveh, which is essentially modern-day Mosul, and Nimrud, which is very close to it, just south of it, were the first two Assyrian cities to be explored by Europeans in the early 19th century. So the French first and then the British, who were just digging stuff up to take to the Louvre and the British Museum. To cut a long story short, it's more complicated than that. This is a time at which the idea of... Science is coalescing in Europe and the shift from natural philosophy, which was essentially theological, trying to understand how the divinely created world worked, not unlike our Babylonians and Assyrians, to a a kind of more rational uh, understanding of the world. Evidence mattered and Big imperial centres like London and Paris were supposed to be centres of, of knowledge production. And so everything had to come there. And we can think about Darwin, young Darwin, setting off on the Beagle to collect specimens for natural history. And therefore antiquarians were also collecting stuff to be brought to London to be classified and organised. This is long before the idea of archaeology, where you study everything in context and you document everything as you go. Archaeology's really about assemblages and context. This is a world of things that were thought to speak for themselves and in a world of the Ottoman Empire before the modern day nation states and the idea that states had the rights to their own antiquities. So there's just a lot of movement and stuff. And so young British explorer called Austin Henry Layard locked out on a vast collection of cuneiform tablets that he found, or his team, in fact his foreman, his Iraqi, what we would now call Iraqi, but Ottoman, local Ottoman foreman Daoud Toma found, and luckily for him... These cuneiform tablets had all been burnt in antiquity and fired when the Medes and Babylonians had sacked Nineveh and destroyed it in 612 BC. Nobody could read the script yet, but they were beautiful and they were indestructible because they were essentially terracotta. And so they were all shipped to London, tens of thousands of them, over the course of several decades in various batches. And it was the beginnings of decipherment of not cuneiform in general, but Assyrian cuneiform. Cuneiform in general had started to be worked on a few decades before. So there was this amazing collection. of What turned out to be everything from so-called uh, royal correspondence to the scholarly correspondence with the king to collections of, yeah, of more theoretical works about how all the scholarship worked. It took, well, the decipherment is still not finished. There's a big project at the British Museum at the moment to finish it off. But yeah, it's, it was the foundation stone, really, of Assyriology in Northern
0: Europe. So how did this, this foundation stone, how did it lead to this whole idea, this notion of the name Ashurbanipal's library? I'm sure, I know you've done a lot of work on this, so feel free to go into the detail.
1: So this is controversial, so there will be colleagues who disagree with me on this. I come from this from a history of science training, which is very much my background. So it's very noticeable that we don't really have a word for library in Assyrian or Babylonian, there is a word, gerginaku, which occurs three or four times that might mean library, or it might not. And the early excavators talked really about finding an archive. And because they were not yet archaeologists, they're not really recording context. So we can't, it's really quite difficult to reconstruct exactly where they found this stuff. So we know in general terms because of diary entries. Nevertheless, When the tablets got back here and people started to work on them, they started to arrive in about 1839, 1840. So there's a whole generation of people just working on these. This is at the same time that the central... Part of the um, British Museum is, well, the British Museum is starting to be opened. This is really some of the newest stuff that arrives there. And they're starting to build the big round reading room in the centre of the British Museum that becomes the British Library. And so they're literally surrounded by thinking about how collections form and how buildings form. And there are inscriptions on the bottom of some of the tablets what we call colophons, basically book plates describing how what the tablets are for. And it's clear that some of them at least are for the king's own use, King Ashurbanipal's use. And so we can see a shift then in the way that Victorian scholars are writing about this collection from being just a collection or an archive to, in the late 60s, Early 70s of the 19th century, suddenly, starting people starting to talk about Ashurbanipal's library, and so, for instance, the big reference work, the standard history of the ancient Middle East, at this point is by a classicist called Rawlinson, and it goes through several editions. and George Rawlinson, who wrote the great book called Five Great Monarchies of the Ancient World, is the brother of Henry Rawlinson, who's doing after the decipherment. And so we can see between one edition to the next, suddenly Ashurbanipal's library starts to appear in this reference work that hasn't before. And at the same time... The British Museum scholars themselves are starting to use this. So this phrase appears several decades after the first discovery of the collection. So it's really an intellectual conceptualization of all of these tablets, which more recent archaeologists and particularly a former curator at the British Museum, Julian Reed, has shown were found actually in many different places, four or five, possibly even six different places across the palace and temples of Nineveh.
0: And what do you think this therefore tells us about the actual like scholarly layout of someone like Nineveh at the time of Ashurbanipal and, and other cities in the Assyrian Empire at that time?
1: It's difficult. So we know there was a the Temple of Nabu because we have tablets with colophons on them describing that, the tablets being deposited in, in the collection there, and the very meagre remains of the foundations, which were unfortunately really badly excavated in the early 20th century by, by the British Museum, And then we have various parts of the library in which the tablets were found, often en masse. However, what we don't know is whether they were found undisturbed or whether they were the result of invading armies coming through and searching for stuff. Because again, we've got good parallels from other periods where this happens too. The armies come in and they're looking for evidence to use against the the conquered. Um, And they're just looking to loot stuff as well. So one, at least one tablet escapes from Ashurbanipal's library and ends up in southern Iraq 500 years later right, with the kind of book plate on it saying it belongs to Ashurbanipal's library. So we don't really know because this stuff was found before archaeology was conceptualised exactly what its deposition was, which makes it very frustrating. Um, But there was we can be sure that yes, certainly Ashurbanipal was really interested in scholarship and he did have a private collection. But to what extent all of the tablets can be counted from Nineveh can be counted as the collection, and to what extent it was a library in any meaningful sense are two other big, difficult philosophical <laughs> questions.
0: I mean, and as you say, so we do have the evidence that Ashurbanipal himself, he was big into scholarly pursuits during his reign, was he?
1: Yeah, everyone is quite tempted to think of Ashurbanipal as a, as a really effective leader of Assyria. I have a rather different view. We know that he wasn't destined to become king. So just as modern royal families, there are heirs who are trained up. And we think of now as in Britain, we talk about the Prince of Wales or more generally the Crown Prince. For Assyria, it wasn't a matter of straightforward male primogeniture because kings had many wives to ensure that they would produce an heir. So there were often many competitors to the throne and they would just pick their favoured one and they might fall out of favour and be replaced. But Ashurbanipal was not the firstborn son of the firstborn son, and he'd been trained up for actually to be probably a priest of Nabu. And uh, some of the colophons that we have that name Ashurbanipal actually talk about him as a prince and in the context of the worship of Nabu. So there's a series of sort of happenstance, uh, grisly accidents, murders, etc and his father changing his mind about who succession should be. So Ashurbanipal, to cut a long story short, ends up on the throne of uh, Assyria without the normal training to be a crown prince, and it particularly has no military training. He's in charge of this vast empire that stretches from essentially the top of the Gulf, some type, sort of into Egypt, Right up into Turkey, Mediterranean coast, etc. No military training. What does he do? What has he got at his disposal? He's got all of his scholarly training and his worship. We can see this. He doesn't go in battle. If you look at his cultural reliefs, he isn't leading an army in the way that his grandfather Sennacherib did. You look at his inscriptions as well. He's staying at home and praying for the good outcome, of the army. And he's when there's particular uh, military victory and the uh, enemy head of the enemy forces are captured, the head of the enemy forces is transported back to um, Nineveh, and you can see the famous garden relief, and where Ashurbanipal is having a nice picnic in the garden with his wife, and there's Teum and the captured king hanging on the tree. Right. So scholarship, scholarship, scholarship all the way from him, because that's the only thing he's got. And essentially, it doesn't work very well. And the the empire starts to collapse around him. So there's this huge amount of scholarly production in which he's collecting. He's getting his his invading armies to, to find all the scholarly tablets they can and bring them back and recopy them. So we have in the British Museum tablets in Babylonian script that were found in Nineveh. And then there are documents also talking about the recopying process, poor captured scholars in fetters, in chains, being forced to copy out either from memory or from stuff. So he's going through this whole process of reappropriating knowledge for himself, for managing this empire, because he's really not got a very good grip on it too. So there's this whole process of erasure of the traditions of transmission. Normally, scholarships, well, scholars will write at the bottom of their tablets, well, you know, this tablet's been in my family, or I've borrowed it, and I've made a copy from you know, another member of the community, etc. So we get these big trains of transmission. Ashurbanipal, no, this is the tablet of Ashurbanipal, king of the world. Right. and then, So we presumably think that the other tablets from other places were probably meant for disposal once they'd been recopied and standardised. This all collapses, I think, because it's not revenue generating. I mean, the whole of the empire depends on just conquering booty. It's really sort of centripetal. You grab resources from the outside, from the peripheries, and you bring it in. And there's this conspicuous consumption in the middle. But Ashurbanipal is at war with his brother, in, who is governing Babylonia. And there's this really destructive civil war, essentially, that again is a huge drain on resources and doesn't bring anything in. So everything starts to collapse pretty fast. And we can trace over a decade the stopping of the production of writing in the court. And we can also see at the same time, there's a shift in governance. So Assyrians didn't count years. They named them after, or the king chose an eponym, so a year would be named after a particularly favoured official. And in the early days of the empire, there was a kind of rota about who, which people in which jobs got to do, but has a year named after them in a roughly a decade-long cycle. It then became a more kind of way of showing favour. By the end of Ashurbanipal's reign, he's choosing the chief courtyard sweeper and the chief cook. He's no longer choosing great imperial officials of the major provinces, the senior military officials. I mean, he's real kind of down to kind of this little sort of, I always think of him as kind of Miss Havisham kind of set up in this collapsing palace with just his faithful retainers around him in the last three decades or so.
0: It's amazing how it goes from heyday to decline, doesn't it, in that that period from what you can kind of interpret from the records that survive, isn't it? I
1: mean, there are all sorts of other reasons for the collapse. There was a major environmental problem, so there were famines and, you know, harvest failures, etc. But this is somebody who was just really ill-prepared to rule.
0: Eleanor, one of the really things which was interesting there was that you mentioned, obviously, there's quite a lot of Babylonian links during this time of this cuneiform. And one of the jobs that you mentioned that these scholars are doing, it's not just advising, it's it's copying cuneiform that's already been written elsewhere. And remaking it, repurposing it, so it's in Ashurbanipal's image, shall we say, something like that?
1: Yes, absolutely. So we've been focusing a lot on royal scholarship, but there are also people, non-royal people, that need and want advice, whether from uh, illnesses or wanting to know about their future, etc., and sort of making their own personal plans. So there are scholars attached to temples, not particularly the Temple of Nabu. not only the Temple of Nabu in Babylonia and South Iraq for all the period we've been talking about. People who would have, yeah, for some parts of their lives be doing that, but also would have a life outside the temple working with private clients. I mean, we think of priests as having a vocation and that's all they do is is look after their flocks. But for Babylonian priesthood, it was a very part-time privilege and duty that went with being a particular male members of particularly elite families. And the more, the, the brighter, the more scholarly would, would do that. And there'd be other members of the family who would just be, you know, running the family business, etc., and trading or, or whatever it was. And then others might be going into local politics. So well-connected families doing this whole variety of different things. Again, one can think about Victorian parallels of, you know, eldest son inheriting, another son going into the army, another son going into the priesthood, that kind of thing going around. So there's all of this happening in Babylonia and for other temples in Assyria all the period we've been talking about but Babylon is where it starts and it's where the Assyrians think of as the culturally. they have a kind of inferiority complex about Babylonia it's it's culturally more sophisticated than Assyria so Assyria has its own cultural production too, but there's always this sense that Babylon's doing it better and that Babylon is where the, you know, where the real
0: knowledge happens. So they're keen to get that They're keen to
1: get, basically. always keen to get scholars and always keen to get knowledge from Babylonia, yeah.
0: And I guess that also highlights one of the other themes that we talked about already and once again to stress, you know, throughout this period, this idea of travel across the Assyrian Empire, beyond the borders of Assyria of these intellectuals accompanying the king to these places or wherever like itinerant scholars should we say
1: yeah so there are itinerant scholars who are yeah moving to power to look for patronage the king would take scholars with him on on military campaign when scholars did go or the you know the army would take a scholar on campaign as well And then there were also, yes, sort of major centres of learning of temples, and the scholars would go on their own anyway. Because the scholars have patronage relationships with the king, not with him all the time. And again, our correspondence shows us that some of these really important people could be away from the king for quite a long period of time, looking after other people, looking after their own affairs. They're not sort of stuck to him with glue. And different types of collars have different sorts of arrangements with the king. So some, you might only see the king perhaps a couple of times a year, to come for big occasions and be in, in correspondence with him all the other times. The ones that were much fit, more physically close to him are the ones we perhaps ironically know least about because they were more rarely in, in written correspondence and didn't need to necessarily ask permission to have an audience with the king because they were intimates and they could just chat, talk to each other. So it's the scholars that were a bit more physically and socially distant to the king we know most about.
0: And, and do we know, the last question you're going to ask, I mean, do we know particular names? I mean, from the ancient Greek and Roman world, we hear of like these astronomers or these scholars who have a particular name. But is it similar with ancient Assyria? Do we know particular names of people who were these scholars?
1: Yes, we absolutely do. Because we, A, we've got their correspondence. And B, we've got these book plates, these colophons at the ends of the tablets that give us all of their genealogies and who they're copying from and who they're learning from. So when I was talking about earlier about dynasties of scholars then, yeah, this is, this is the evidence that we've got. So we don't know all of them, but we know the most important. And yes, it's sort of, we're talking in the orders of dozens at any one time rather than hundreds, but these are the real elite. Fair enough.
0: I mean, so you mentioned, as we wrap up now, as Ashurbanipal's reign goes on, that, that you seem to see this, this decline. So what do we know about form scholarship as we get to the end of the Assyrian Empire? And I guess how it endures from then mm. on?
1: So it's all collapsing in the palace, but it's continuing in the temples outside. So we can see in Ashur itself and in and in Nimrud and in more provincial places, even like Husarina, continuing right until the, the invaders get there. And we can track the invaders moving westward in the uh, late 7th century BC. People flee and they resettle. And people from Ashur resettled in this Babylonian city called Uruk. And... Scholarship re-evolves and reshapes itself. I mean, that's a conversation for another day, given that our time's running out. But there's a whole other than battle for survival after the Persian conquest in 539 and the decades after that, because the Persians are just really not that interested in traditional scholarship. And yet it endures and sort of gradually peters out over the next half millennium or so till the middle of the first century BC seen as where our last evidence
0: is. So much still to cover, as you say, that'd be a chat for another day. But I think from all we've chatted so far today, and doesn't it really stress like the importance of cuneiform scholarship, of cuneiform research going forwards for looking at this time period and not just you know, the most prominent figures, but what's happening around administration and so much more during those many centuries.
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, we could have had another whole other conversation about the project I'm working on at the moment, which is about literacy in an agricultural warehouse in the Babylonian countryside. <laughs> There's a whole other the other end of the social spectrum. There's just such a vast amount of evidence and it's so richly contextualised because of our archaeological methodologies. And yeah, it's really important for understanding how people thought and, and worked um, really in the first half of history and therefore the ramifications that has for later periods both in the Middle East and beyond.
0: Very exciting indeed. And Eleanor, last but certainly not least, you've written a a book all about scholarly cuneiform during the Assyrian period and more, which is called?
1: It's called Ancient Knowledge Networks.
0: Brilliant. Well, it just goes to me to say, this has been awesome. Great to meet you in person. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast.
1: Well, thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Well, there you go. Assyrian scholarship, With Professor Eleanor Robson. It was about time that we dedicated an episode to Ancient Assyria, and you can rest assured that we'll be doing more episodes in the future about more ancient Mesopotamian civilizations, Assyria, and so much more. Now, to wrap it all up, if you'd like even more Ancients content in the meantime, well, you can subscribe to our Ancients weekly newsletter via the link in the description below. I'll also mention here my book, which is coming out in the next couple of days at the end of January 2022. It's exciting times. Slightly daunting, slightly scary times, but very exciting. If you'd like to know what followed Alexander the Great's death and the chaos that immediately ensued in this ancient Macedonian Game of Thrones, then why not buy the book today and have a read for yourself? There are some really extraordinary stories in there, and I hope you'll enjoy it. I'll put a link to the book in the description below and if you'd also be kind enough to leave us a rating on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, it would be greatly appreciated. See you in the next episode. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe.